and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the community radio network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Prue Clark. Today we have a really special guest that can give us some insight into one of the forces shaping the world's major news brands today. Gina Chua is the executive editor of Reuters, one of the world's biggest media organisations with 2,500 journalists in 200 global cities. Gina grew up in Singapore and went on to lead the Asian edition of the Wall Street Journal and the South China Morning Post before moving to New York with Reuters. Gina had already broken several barriers when, a year ago, she decided to transition to her true self as a woman. That would be a daunting decision for any media boss, but Gina's move came amid a rethink in global news brands about how to build paying audiences. Many have decided more diversity in their own ranks is essential to better serving audiences and building trust. Gina's appointment came after Reuters appointed its first woman editor-in-chief in its 170-year history. Women and people of colour took the top editorial jobs for the first time at the Washington Post, the Financial Times, The Economist, ABC, CBS, MSNBC and The Guardian. I'm so pleased that Gina joins me now from New York. Gina, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. I love this idea that while most of us were struggling in the last couple of years with our shrinking worlds during the pandemic, Katie Robertson wrote about you in the New York Times that you saw this as a moment to to open up to your true self. Can you talk us through how the pandemic brought you to this moment? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is it wasn't because of the pandemic that I transitioned, but it, it helped, right? And I don't want to minimize all the pain and suffering and death, obviously, I had made a decision I was going to transition. I, I think I, I decided I was going to do it before my 60th. I turned 60 this year. So this was um, this was my moment. I think the pandemic really helped me ease into it. At first, when the pandemic hit, I thought, oh, you know, what's going to happen? How will I do this? And so on. And I was honestly not that happy about it. Not happy about the pandemic for lots of reasons. But, but I thought this was going to get in the way of my transition. It turned out instead that it was just this wonderful way of easing into everything. Because you're working from home, because you don't see people in person, especially if you think about the first you know, six months where you literally didn't see anybody. Mm. Um, and so everybody just sees you, you know, from the, from the top of your head to your shoulders. Um, so you can actually just feel like you're yourself. And I think that really kind of just helped me understand who I was becoming. Mm. And how has it been for you to be your true self after all this time? It's um, it's very strange. It's it's both um, it's both exhilarating and momentous and huge, and at the same time incredibly normal and natural and mundane. Mm-hmm. And and it's both those things, right? Because at, at one level, it is this huge step you've taken off. You, you know, you've stepped outside a door. You don't know what's on the other side of the door, and it's and it's tremendous. And at the same time, you're just stepping outside the door. You've literally stepped out all the time before. And it's become this sort of very natural thing. And and I think that's been one of the the great revelations, I think, to me about how you can both sort of simultaneously feel this wonderful sense of of joy and at the same time just realize it's another day. And, you know, pre 
pre-transition, you know, when, when I went out as Gina, I would stand at the door and I would listen to see if the neighbors were around and just you know, make sure you get out of the building without being seen. And now, of course, I just walk out. I mean, that, that level of mundaneness has changed and yet it's it's so momentous that I don't have to stand at the door and wait. If you understand, it, yeah. it's a bit strange. So look, I imagine that the idea of transitioning your career, which has been such a big part of your life and you've had such an amazing career, must have been must have weighed on you, a fear that, that it might impact you. I think it, 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 of course it did. I mean, I knew I had good friends. I knew I was in a very supportive um, organization. I really didn't have, you know, I didn't have the fear that they would fire me. I didn't have the fear that, um, you know, things would be terrible. But I think you always wonder what the day-to-day reaction will be, how people will treat you, how they will see you. Um, you think beyond the immediate circle of people you work with um, and to, you know, 2,500 people in 200 locations, you know, not everyone's going to say this is a great thing, right? And so I did have that level of trepidation, but it's been fantastic. I mean, honestly, I've had nothing but support up and down the organization. I've had tons of emails from colleagues, from people I, I know well, people I don't know at all. And I've just gotten all these messages, uh, in fact, from outside the organization as well. So it's been Everyone's mileage will vary, but but I've had a tremendous experience and it's been great. That's fantastic to hear. I, I want to bring in this moment, and especially in America, Black Lives Matter, so many newsrooms realising, having their eyes open to the fact that if they're going to build audiences and build businesses dependent on audiences paying for them, that they need to build a better relationship with their audiences and that diversity is a big factor in that. How has that helped you, do you think, make this transition? Well, clearly there's a moment for diversity, at least in some newsrooms in in America and around the world. Um, I wouldn't say it's a universal thing, but I think people have started to understand that that the old order needs to be rethought, that the people perhaps who has always been in charge perhaps should not by default be in charge. There's no reason why they can't be in charge. But, you know, but they have to open it up more meritocratically to everyone. And I think that that's been... That's been a realization that is that certainly swept across this country, has swept across several other countries. It's a it's a long slog. I don't think everyone fully understands why they should do it. I don't think people fully understand how to do it. But I do think that it is a wave that, you know, you stand a chance of being sort of really swept behind. I think if you if you um, it's easy to sort of think back if you look back in um, say the U.S. 30, 40, 50 years ago and thought about the level of um, legal racial discrimination in this country and certainly in other countries around the world. And you think, well, that's all past now. And you think, well, what could they have been thinking back then to think this was okay? Well, you know, in 40 or 50 years, people are going to come back and look at us and say, well, what were we thinking, right? And so I think just trying to understand how it looks in context is a pretty, you know, it's an important step for all the the people might be questioning why why we need to be far more progressive about um, representation in the newsroom and, frankly, representation in terms of what we cover. Well, I want to talk about that a lot more in a minute, but um, just, just to drill down on this moment in America, I mean, I was talking to my American husband last night about this, and he was saying that, you know, that Trump had sort of given license to a lot of racist sentiment and 
misogyny that was still there and made it made them feel that, like they could come out and actually display those traits which they might have been hiding for a long time. And on top of that, the police camera videos, I mean, he, he says that he grew up in New Jersey, just didn't think things were that bad. <laughs> and so this combination in the Trump era actually made it very obvious to white Americans what was really going on. What's your take on that? It is a combination of, of multiple things. It is true, you should mention to your husband that New Jersey was actually the home of some really horrible incidents. And Bob Dylan um, actually did a nice song about of course, a, a, yeah. a boxer who was... Uh, who was hurricane, uh, I always think Trump, about uh, that. Hurricane, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, like New Jersey, certainly not exempt from no, all of that. No. Um, but um, no, look, I think the police cameras were part of it. I think people, uh, not just police cameras, right? I mean, the proliferation of cell phones and sort of, when you can see it happening, when 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 you can see someone's knee on a neck for long um, minutes, I think it becomes harder and harder to avert your gaze. And I think that that has that has certainly sort of awakened a consciousness in people. Now, part of that, of course, has sparked the backlash. So so you see both sides of it. But you're you're absolutely right. I think it's the visibility. I think that has made things just more visceral, and it means that I think it's harder for people to sort of say, "I really don't know what's happening. I live in New Jersey. It's okay, right?" And I think that I think that that's that's moved on. But again, it's not just in the U.S., right? It is all around the world that you can see you can see much more incidents of injustice and much more incidents of things that really shouldn't be happening. Few people really have had your breadth of experience on these issues to go from being an Asian man in Asian newsrooms, reaching the pinnacle of those newsrooms in two settings, and then to go to America as a, a racial minority, and now to have had this transition. So, I mean, it's so, I don't, it's just profound, really. And I, it'll be a long time before we meet anyone else who has this same perspective, I think. So, maybe if we could start with, you know, looking back on your experiences coming to America as a racial minority, how do you see that now? I'd come to the US as a, as a college student and as a, as a grad student. So, it wasn't, um, it wasn't an alien landscape to me. And I think that people um, get their, if you like, their consciousness raised along the way, when they start to think more about things, when they start to realize that perhaps the, the way that they've seen the world isn't the way that the world should be. So, you know, I, I can certainly think of enough occasions in time where you just step back and you'd ask yourself, like, was this the way it's supposed to be? I, you know, in fact, this was in Asia, which was more interesting. So I was editor of the Asian um, Wall Street Journal and, you know, the first Asian to be the editor of the Asian Journal. Um, and I think we'd gone to a um, printing press launch in Korea. And I was with, you know, all my colleagues who were all, you know, Westerners, Caucasian. And, you know, and I was sort of following them through as one of the VIPs. And our host basically tried to stop me from coming through because clearly, you know, what, what was I doing here? I must have been one of the, you know, hanger-ons or one of the support staff. And, you know, that's not white on Asian discrimination. That's Asian on Asian discrimination. And you realize that it's what's built into your brain, right? And so I guess what I would say is the first thing to do is, is along the way, you really have to start understanding what's in your brain and sort of getting past those issues. I used to say to people, this thought experiment, it doesn't work anymore, but it worked 20 years ago. You walk into a room, you're a really poor journalist. You haven't been well prepared. You're about to interview the CEO of a company. You don't know who it is. Don't know if it's a man, don't know if it's a woman, don't know if he's Asian, don't know if he's Caucasian. You go in and there are two people standing there. 
there's a white man and an Asian man, and you have to go in and shake someone's hand first. Which one do you shake? And that tells you what's in your brain. They haven't done anything to you, and yet you're running through this in your head. And I think that for a lot of people of my generation who grew up in a colonial past, you know, I was born a British colonial subject. We got independence when I was, I guess, four years old, right? But, you know, it's, it's sort of clearing your mind of those cobwebs, and I think it takes a long time. And so I think the first thing is you have to clear yourself. And then part of it for me in terms of navigating all of this world is, I guess the right word for it now is code switching. I've become adept at being able to navigate different different cultures. And I think that's partly because I grew up to some extent as a third culture kid growing up in Singapore, going to high school in the Philippines, to college in the US. And so I can just switch from one to the other. But I mean, it's not, it's not something I would recommend for everyone, but certainly it helps you navigate through all the things. And then finally, to sort of your, your slightly unspoken question about how do I manage then this final transition, which sort of shifts me from, you know, one racial minority to, you know, a very, very small minority. Because I think trans people are somewhere between 0.6 to 1.2% of the population, maybe, or something like that. And the short answer is um, get in charge of the budget and no one dares to get in your way. Also not recommended as a path, but it does work for me. So, so being so senior in your career probably did make it easier, you think? It, it did. No, that, I think there's no question it did. And I, and I think, you know, I mean, kidding aside, I think it is difficult for people who are more junior in the career and have the potential to face all sorts of discrimination. It doesn't even have to be overt discrimination. And in, in many cases, the discrimination isn't intended. It's just, it's just what people's general biases are and it's what they are, what they are um, implicit hidden biases, they're hidden to themselves. It's just the way they act, perhaps unthinkingly. And I think that's one of the big issues that we have to try to deal with uh, in newsrooms and organizations and so on is, is how people can start to break free of their own just implicit understanding of the world. It's, it's, it's back to that question of you walk in with the two people, one of whom might be the CEO. It's, it's not that you're a bad person, but there's some things that have been wired into your brain through your experience and you have to learn to get beyond those. So uh, money is a big incentive and obviously there have been a bunch of newsrooms that have, have at least decided to go with it. So we've had you know a range of big newsrooms from Reuters um, to Washington Post. ABC News have put women and people of colour in the top editorial posts for the first time. So at least they're understanding the financial incentive. Yes, I think that's right. I think there's two reasons I would say that you try to build newsrooms that are more representative of the communities that they cover. One is because it's good for your newsroom. It's good for you to be able to find the talent, right? I mean, if you think there's, if talent is equally distributed around the world and you are not allowing that talent to flourish, then you're, well, I mean, frankly, you're, you're working against your own interests, right? It doesn't even matter about whether you're you want to be progressive or you don't want to be progressive. It's simply, you know, why are you squandering talent in your newsroom? Why, why can't you have, um, you know, more representative people? And I mean, that's great for the newsroom and that's great for the people in there and, and, and more power to them. But the real reason to do it is because your coverage needs to be more representative of the community that you're serving. And if your, if your newsroom isn't somewhat representative, if your stories are all skewed with uh, with a point of view that's very different from the community you're serving, 
then frankly, your news isn't going to be that good. And you know, you might have been able to get away with it 20 or 30 years ago when audiences didn't have that much choice. And now they have a ton of choice. And so if you're going to come in and say, I'm the gatekeeper and I'm the voice of God effectively, and this is the way news is, and this is what's newsworthy and this isn't, then frankly, the communities are going to turn to people who serve them better. So there is a real economic uh, imperative to this, as well as frankly, a public service imperative to this. People need news that better reflects who they are and what they care about. And so for newsrooms that have tried and have found that they struggled to keep staff from diverse backgrounds, what, what would you say to them about how to do this? First of all, I would say it's hard work, right? It's hard work because newsrooms are hardwired in certain ways. And and the older you are, and we're 170 years old, the older you are, the more tradition you have. And tradition is a good thing in some respects, and tradition can be terrible in other respects. You need a strategic plan. You need to support the people that come in. You need to give them mentors. You need to give them role models they can look up to. And it's especially difficult for the first few people that come in because they have no role models and they have to not just do their job well, but then they have to do it exceedingly well. And then they have to try to be role models for other people. It's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous standard to hold people to, but, but of course it's, um, it's something that needs to be done. Otherwise it becomes very difficult. And so you have to help support them. I'm reading this great book called The End of Bias by um, Jessica Nordell. And the real story of the book is that it's not issues of overt discrimination. It's not a couple of bad apples that are out to get all the women or get all the minorities, whatever. It's the systemic biases that are built into the system that make it really hard for people who aren't seen as the, I guess, as the right type, whatever that is, you know, whatever that group that historically advanced you drink the right drinks, you hang out with the right people, you tell the right jokes, you look the right way. And everybody else suffers a little bit in comparison, not hugely, just a little bit, but the cumulative effect of all of that over, you know, over a decade. And when you look at the end of that, basically, most of the people in charge, all the people that all look and sound and talk and understand the same way. And to accept the difference in an organization takes, I think, a huge amount of tolerance for diversity and tolerance for tolerance for difference that I think takes a huge amount of effort and people have to put in that effort. Is it enough to just change the ranks, to diversify the ranks? Does it have to be leadership as well? it has to be leadership. Again, to go back to first principles, right? In newsrooms, at least, the leadership decides what's news, right? I mean, you could have an entirely diverse staff and have a very old guard leadership. And when the when the diverse staff come up and say, look, this is a story and that's a story and how about this? And, you know, I'd like to write about that. And then they run up into a phalanx of, well, that's not a story. Our readers would never like that. And again, I don't want to suggest that those people are misogynist or racist or discriminatory. It's just not what they've seen in the world. It's not what their understanding of news is, not what their understanding of what a good reporter is or a good manager is or a good photographer is. And so if you don't change the leadership, you don't change the thinking. And that's why you need to have a much more 
I, I don't like using the word diverse so much because it seems to sort of say that diversity is important for the sake of diversity. It, it is, but, but I'd much prefer to say, you know, that's why you need a leadership that's representative of what you're covering, the people you're covering and the community that you swim in. You know, that's what matters. The broad-based representation is what matters. Some of the catalyst for this diversification of newsrooms in the US has been Trump's election and the fact that they didn't see that coming. And they also had a lack of socioeconomic diversity as well. No, exactly. Um, I, I, I'd split those two things. I mean, I think not seeing Trump coming, I think, is a failing across a ton of newsrooms, diverse and non-diverse. I think that to some extent that is quite possibly the issue of of uh, socioeconomic diversity, but it's also geographic diversity. I think, you know, certainly when we talk about major newsrooms in the US, certainly, and I think this unfortunately might be true in uh, in other countries as well, is that the media has become increasingly elite and increasingly coastal, at least in the US. And so, you know, if you've got a lot of people who are covering things at a distance, they're not, again, swimming in those communities. And so they don't, the, the dearth of local news and the death of you know smaller newsrooms is a real issue. And I think that's going to be a huge issue that people need to focus on. And, and, and there are initiatives along the way. I'm happy to say I try to play in some of those spaces. And you're absolutely right. Diversity comes in a zillion different forms, right? It's not just gender. It's not just ethnicity. It's not just disability. But, you know, it is veteran status. It is socioeconomic. There is no point if you have a newsroom that's rainbow colored, but they all went to the same school and they all had the same accent and they've all known each other since they were five years old. That's not the point of diversity. The point of diversity is better representation. We're talking to you at the end of the Global Transgender Awareness Week and Transgender Remembrance Day. So you've now become a very visible face of this community at a time of great improvement with Joe Biden being the first global leader to acknowledge the role that transgender people played in his election. But at the same time, there's an all-time high in killings and also this development in politics where transgender families, especially in Australia, have become a vehicle for extreme right-wing fear campaigns. How do you help your journalists navigate that? And what advice do you give to them when they're having to um, report on these issues? Well, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> look, I think for better or for worse, I certainly did not plan it this way. Trans people seem to be at the center of culture wars around the world. And, you know, not that long ago, it was gay and lesbian rights. Um, and now it's trans uh, <laughs> If I know this, maybe I would have just waited a bit. Um, but um, there's a couple of things, and and I am much more. I, the word is not vocal. I, I'm 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 I talk more about it, and I, and I flag it up more within our newsroom, and and obviously where I can, um, forums like this to sort of talk about better coverage. I think the key thing is you have to know the science and you have to know the sources well. And I think there are a lot of people with a lot of opinions. Opinions are fine. Everyone's got one. But I think it's critical that, you know, those opinions be questioned, they be challenged, as you would with anything. I mean, I'm not saying accept pro-trans views any more than accept anti-trans views, you know, without questioning. I think everything needs to be questioned. But I think far too much coverage is of the he said, she said form um, where, you know, you're just trying to let's, let's get some balance, let's quote everybody and let's put it on the table. I don't think you help your readers that way because I think... The readers need to have a little bit more understanding of what's going on. I think that there are all sorts of 
organizations out there that support one thing or another and claim to speak for one group or another group. And I, I'm not sure that that's right. There are real authorities. And I think that presenting those facts as they stand is is very helpful. I think the other thing that really does does make a difference is that and I understand the temptation to treat everything as conflict because that's what makes drama and that's what makes a good story. And so everything tends to be, you know, a persecution or a victim or, a you know, but everybody in there plays a role as opposed to being fleshed out characters on their own. And I think that the thing that I say to everybody is you should try and cover people, not just trans people, you should try and cover issues with people as real people in the fullness of themselves, not as representatives, you know, not as an avatar of one side or avatar of the other side. And if you can start showing people in their fullness, I think the key issue for trans people in the same way that the key issue was for, I think, gay and lesbian people was when you started to see that they weren't some sort of monolithic block of, you know, this kind of scary boogeyman or that kind of scary thing, you then you start to understand there are issues on which you can take one kind of stand or other issues you can take another stand, but it's not all, all one thing or all the other thing. And I think that that's one of the things that journalism really needs to do better. Um, you know, obviously we need to try and make sense of the world for people and try and simplify things so they don't have to grapple with all of the complexity of everything. But at the same time, like, when we oversimplify, I don't think we help anybody. Does this mean it's more important to actually tell the stories of real people to illustrate the issues? So to have to have real people in stories rather than just experts talking? It's funny. There's two things I would say about this. And it's sort of it's going very wide and it's going very micro. I think that the best ways of telling stories are firstly to have real people in them, to flesh them out in the fullness of their lives. But, you know, the danger when you do that, of course, is everything's anecdote. There's three people who are like this, so you should draw this conclusion, which, of course, doesn't make sense. You need to marry that with the other side. You need to marry that with data. You need to marry that with something rigorous. And so when you can, when you can have, you know, three fully fleshed out people and then say that they are, you know, 82% of the population, you know, being able to pull those two parts together, I think, I think work best. Having just pure anecdote doesn't really, I think, do justice generally to the subject. And, and frankly, at the end of the day, I'm not sure I would trust that story, right? Because you've given me a compelling portrait of somebody, but what do I do then? Telling stories just about data, I think, doesn't make it come home and doesn't make it so truly engaging. And of course, the worst kind is the one in between where you have, as you suggest, dueling experts. And everyone is just, you know, just an avatar and a character in the middle. And, you know, readers don't get any sense of, you know, who to believe at the end of all of that. So in this role, executive editor, you you play a big role in, as you say, 2,500 journalists in 200 cities around the world. A lot of those will not be comfortable places for transgender people or even gay and lesbian people. How have you navigated that in this new role and what, what challenges and opportunities has it presented? It's, it is a tricky one. Um, there aren't protections for people everywhere. And, you know, obviously as an organisation, Thomson Reuters is committed to supporting all those people. We stand against discrimination, but of course we also, generally speaking, obey the law of the land that we're in. So, you know, for example, it presents all sorts of little interesting things you have to navigate through. So for example, we have a, a campaign where we encourage people to, to self-identify their ethnicity, 
their sexual orientation, their gender identity, and so on. In some countries, we don't do that. We don't do that because we don't want to be collecting data that uh, might put people at risk. And so it's frankly better for us not to have that information than to, to collect it and be potentially forced to give it up. There are other countries in the world where, you know, collecting some types of ethnicity or identity data is illegal. And so we don't do that either. So we do what we can. And then, of course, the other part of it is that, you know, we have, I guess, what we call employee resource groups, which are a women's network, a black employees and allies network, an LGBT network. And we do outreach. But certainly with the LGBTQ employee resource group, we're also really conscious that there may be some parts of the world where people don't feel comfortable dialing into that. We just have to find different ways that we can reach out to them and, you know, and tell people we can't change the laws of the country they're in, um, but we can tell them they're not alone. Have you heard from people who have been heartened by your promotion? I got so many emails from people. A lot of them were just saying, you know, I'm so, I'm so happy to... Well, a lot of people said, you know, congratulations, happy for you. I got emails from people that said, we're happy to work at an organization where this can happen. And then I got emails from a fair number of people who said, you know, I, my child is uh, trans. I have friends whose child is. I have a friend who is. And a couple of people saying, you know, I'm sort of in the same journey. And in fact, in Singapore, uh, the head of our photo desk in Singapore transitioned earlier this year. So, you know, that's, I, I don't had anything to do with that, but now we're in touch and it's great to be able to, you know, to have a fellow trans sister, so to speak, in, in, uh, in my home country. Um, so it's been incredibly heartening. In fact, not just there, right? I mean, um, after that story in the New York Times came out, I've gotten emails from not random people, not random anymore, now they're friends who've just reached out through the Times to say, you know, could you pass on this message? People have reached out to me, I've reached out back. It's been really nice. And what about in these more repressive countries, maybe staff members? I will be honest, no one has has yet reached out from those places. It depends on what your definition of repressive is, right? And there's certain places where it's outright against the law and there's some places where it's it's just more difficult. And certainly in those sort of in-between areas, there have been, I think, more outreach of people who, while they're not necessarily fully engaged as, you know, here I am and, and so on, I think we've seen people be more engaged in the events we've put on to have discussions. There was a sort of an all-employee chat with me. We ran a session on non-binary identities, and that was very well attended. There was another one on um, being uh, LGBT in Asia, which had a good number of people come through. So, you know, it's been, I think these are all sort of steps along the way. I don't think everyone is prepared and ready to just sort of step up and say, this is who I am. But I think that they are hardened when they can see other people who look like them or who look like who they would like to be. And so everything is a step in the right direction. Have you had a sense that this has changed people's ideas about Reuters and whether they want to work there? Um, well, if, if it, if it has, I hope it has for the better, <laughs> for the worse. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think anyone, um, well, I should say that, um, you know, if people want to come to work for Reuters, they should. We're a great news organization, a good place to be and a nice place to build a career. I hope they don't do it for me, uh, <laughs> or because of me, but, um, I think, I think, <laughs> um, 
I'd like to think they would come regardless. And I'd like to think that they would have believed in us uh, without needing to see me. But um, but if they need to see me just to know it's everything we say is true, then here I am. Fantastic. Gina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been It's been a blast. And thanks for listening. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. The handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Toby Hemmings, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Prue Clark. Thanks for listening.